Today we're going to be reading from Romans 8:28. So I just want to give you a moment to uh, get your Bible or device. And also you can go to the website and click on Sunday services and grab those sermon notes and print them off if you want to follow along. And so Romans 8:28. Let's read together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, before we come to the message, uh, I just want to give a quick word on where we are going as a church with baptism and the Lord's Supper, and particularly the Lord's Supper. Again, I sent out an email through our church uh, email address uh, to all the people that are on our email list. You know if you're on that list if you got that email. If you did not get that email, that means the church does not have your email address. And if you'd like to just receive updates, we, we only send out emails every once in a while. So don't worry if you give us your email address, you're not going on any list. We're not going to sell your information to somebody. We'll try to be very careful as to how much we communicate, how many emails we send out. But if you didn't get that, make sure that you go to our website, use the connect button and sign up so that we can get your email address and we can send out important information, important updates, particularly as we move forward and any of the changes that are going to come as COVID-19 continues. But particularly on baptism in the Lord's Supper, here's just the short version. Baptism is a one-time only thing, something that Christians do once, once they become Christians. And so because we can't be uh, totally touching each other right now, we believe that we should just wait a little bit in order to baptize people. You can wait with baptism. It's okay. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, as restrictions get removed, maybe we can perform some baptisms. Uh, but that's something we're going to hold off on for the moment. Originally, when this began, we also thought it wise to hold off on the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is something that's supposed to be done in person as we gather together. Our presence with one another is a key part of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is never an individual thing that one person partakes by themselves. Never done that way biblically. It's a family meal that shows our unity in the body and our unity in the spirit. And so we thought maybe we should just kind of wait until COVID is done. But upon further reflection and also thinking that COVID is continuing on for, who knows, 12, 18 months, we do think there is room to take communion. Just as this live stream service is not the ideal way to hear the word preached, this should not be what you do, you know, once this all is over. In the same way, the Lord's Supper, taking it by yourselves, but in the gathering of our body in the live stream, is not ideal, but we think it is perfectly fine to do before the Lord. And so what we want to do is begin to practice the Lord's Supper again. Uh, obviously, you're going to need to prepare yourself. So here's some just basic instructions, not too complicated. First of all, of course, prepare your heart, but then make sure you come prepared with bread and juice or even wine if that's what you're going to use. Here's how we're going to do it. I'd like to actually do it for three weeks in a row as we continue on in Romans 8. Our passages coming up are so glorious that we're going to do this three weeks in a row on June 7th, 14th, and 21st. So before the service starts, you need to prepare yourself, prepare your heart, and of course prepare the elements in order to receive the Lord's Supper, and we'll make sure that we give you instructions on how you do that during the service. So that's next Sunday. Uh, make sure that you come prepared for the service. Okay, we've already done lots of talking today, but we're about to enter into a deep, 
deep passage. And so we got a ways to go. So everyone just take a breath right now, okay? Uh, Reestablish yourselves. Get out your Bible uh, because we are going to dig in and I need your full attention today. If you're just joining us, during this COVID-19 season, we are doing a series through the second half of Romans chapter 8. And the reason why we're doing this is that this chapter, maybe almost beyond any other chapter in the Bible, shows us how we can not only endure through difficult times, but it shows us how we can even rise above difficult times. To use Paul's language, Paul says it's possible to not only conquer things like hardship, difficulty, and even death itself. Paul says we can more than conquer these things through Jesus Christ. So today, here's how I want you to think of it. Think of kids playing in a swimming pool or even in a lake. There is one game that I know I love to play as a kid, and I think all kids love to play, and that's to find a ball, let's say a basketball, to take the basketball into the pool, and then what do kids do with that basketball? They try to push it down under the water push it down, and they try to hold it down under the water. But of course, what always ends up happening is that ball inevitably bursts back to the surface. That's one of our favorite games as kids. What Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 is that anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ can possess this kind of buoyancy, You can possess this kind of buoyancy. In other words, there are many things in your life that are going to push you down. You may even be held under for a very long time. You can't even maybe see the light up at the top of the water you've been pushed down so far. But this passage we're going to look at today, it's like air. It's like air that you just keep breathing in, and what it does is it, it, it inflates you. Where you're deflated, a deflated basketball can be pushed down very easily under the water. But you inflate it, you inflate the Christian's life with this passage we're going to look at today, and the more you inflate yourself with this passage, the more you can never be held down. You possess a buoyancy. You become more than a conqueror. So I don't know about you, but I think all of us need this. There are so many difficult things in life, so much hardship. Of course, then death itself is in front of us. So how do we get this kind of buoyancy? Here's the answer. Read God's story. Read God's story. It is when you read God's big story and you discover your place within God's big story that it begins to inflate your soul so much so that you then are able to burst back to the surface. When you get God's story a part of you, you possess this kind of buoyancy that we're talking about. So in our passage today, Paul says that we ought to read God's big story in three ways. We need to read the last page read the storyboard, and read the verb tense. So let's work through those three things today, because if we do, we will become unsinkable. We will possess this buoyancy which every single one of us needs. Here's the first thing then that we must do. We got to read the last page. Read the last page of the story. Let me ask you this question. What if characters within any story you can imagine, what if those characters could know how the story ended? Think of Cinderella, for instance. There she is under her stepmother, being oppressed by her stepmother, scrubbing the floors, all this kind of stuff. What would have happened to Cinderella if somehow she knew that one day she was going to marry the prince and live happily ever after? 
Now, of course, you say, well, that kind of stuff just never happens in a story. Characters in a story don't know how it's going to end. But, but here's the question that I'm trying to ask. What if they did? What difference would that make to them in the midst of their difficulties and in the midst of their trials? Well, it wouldn't make all the pain go away. Cinderella still has to go through all the difficulties. This is her story. She can't escape her story. She has to go through it. But what it would do for her is it would grant her a buoyancy, wouldn't it? It would grant her an inner peace, an inner peace that no longer would ever fall into despair. She would never lose hope because she would always be able to say, oh man, what I'm going through right now is so hard, but I know that this is just one event within a chain of events which eventually is going to lead to my ultimate and total happiness. She'd know that because she knows she's read the last page. She knows how the story ends. Now, listen. God is the great author of your story. And God has written you into the story of his entire universe. And what is most incredible is that you and I, while we are facing all of these trials, while we are going through all of this, get this now, the great author has told us how the story ends. This never happens in stories, but right here in our passage today and throughout the Bible, we learn that God does not ever want his children to despair or to lose hope. He wants his children to possess this buoyancy that we're talking about. And to do that, the great author of the story tells us how it ends. He lets us read the last page. He does this so that we will never lose hope. And right here in Romans 8, 28 to 30, we get a preview of that last page. You can read the literal last page of the Bible, but right here we get a little preview of exactly what is written on that last page. So here's what Romans 8:28 says. Again, it begins by saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, this is the key word, for good. All things work together for good. That single word right there could be written across the whole last page of the Bible, good. That is the last page. That is the ending. It's the happily ever after. So then what is the good that God is working all things towards, this happily ever after? What is that? Well, he goes on to define it, and he defines it in two ways in this passage. We looked at the first way last week. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, here's the phrase now, conformed to the image of his son. That's the first one. And then here's the second way he describes it. It's the very last word, glorified. So those three things, the word good, conformed to the image of his son, and the word glorified, they're all referring to the exact same thing. They're referring to the last page of the story. Your ultimate good is to be completely transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to be made exactly like him. And that's the word to be glorified. Glorification is the word that the Bible uses to describe this. This conforming process begins when you become a Christian, but then it culminates and it comes up to the day Jesus returns. And on the day he returns, in that moment, he'll complete it, transform you to be exactly like Jesus Christ. So what is glorification? Here's the definition for you. It is the final step in God's great story of saving his people through Jesus Christ. It is that moment, it's a particular moment, when Jesus returns, raises his people from the dead, gives them immortal bodies like his own, and brings them to dwell with God on a new earth that is free from all suffering. 
That is the end of the story. That is the last page. The last page stamped over it, the word good, stamped over it, conformed to the image of his son, stamped over the whole thing, the word glorification. Now, do you see then how much hope that ought to bring us? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, this is what will give you this buoyancy, reading this last page. Because think about how this works in your trials. If you're a Christian, have you ever just been sitting there and just groaning and saying, oh, I long, I wish I had a heart that could resist temptation all the time. I wish I had a heart that didn't even desire sin. I wish I had a heart, I long to have a heart that loves God entirely like Jesus did. Rejoice. For one day, you will be fully conformed to the image of his son. Have you ever been in your body and your body is breaking down? Maybe you've got chronic pain issues. Maybe you're struggling with mental health issues. Maybe there's a, a disease or something that you are struggling with and you're groaning in your body. And you're saying, I wish I had a body of power. I wish I had a body like Jesus' resurrection body. Oh, rejoice. For that's what our passage says. It says he is going to conform you to the image of his son. That's going to happen. You're going to get that kind of body. Or do you ever just groan in your body and just say, I wish I could be reunited with those Christians whom I love who are now with Jesus? Do you ever groan and long for the day when you could live in a world where there's no arguing, no backstabbing, no lying, no slandering, no funerals, no family dysfunction? Then you need to rejoice because God has let you read the last page, and the last page says he is working all things together within his children's lives to bring them to their good, which is to conform them exactly to Jesus Christ, to glorify them and bring them into his final kingdom. That is the news from this passage. The Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky put this so well in his famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. One of his characters says this, he says, I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over. And that ultimately, at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts and justify everything that has happened with men. Oh, let this come true and be revealed. Do you feel deflated in life? Do you feel like you're being sometimes pushed down so far that you can't even see the light of the surface? Then read the last page of the story. Knowing the end of the story doesn't remove the pain in the middle. It doesn't re remove all the difficulties that we have to walk through. But what it does is it pumps air into your deflated heart so that you can say, man, this is so hard what I'm going through, but I know that this event, which I'm going through right now, is part of a chain of events which are ultimately leading to my final and complete happiness, to the happily ever after that I so want to enjoy. So that's the first way to possess this buoyancy that we're talking about. If you want to possess it, read the last page of the story. Now that's powerful enough. If a character in a story just knew how it ended, that's powerful enough to get them through all the trials and to give them this buoyancy. But what Paul wants to do is he wants to continue to inflate our hearts with air. So if you really want to be unsinkable, then the second thing Paul says is this, read the storyboard. 
Read the storyboard. Do you know what a storyboard is? Uh, before people film movies and oftentimes before authors write books, what they do is they sit down and they outline the entire story in advance. So in a movie, for instance, they'll draw up all the major scenes that they're eventually going to film. So in other words, what I'm saying is you can read a storyboard and know exactly where the story begins, all the parts in the middle, and where it ends before a single word is actually written in a book or before a single scene is ever filmed. If you can get access to the storyboard, you'll know the whole thing. Now, come back to this Cinderella idea again. Imagine, this is again a bit crazy, but think about this. Imagine if Cinderella, when she was scrubbing the floors and her stepmother was yelling at her, imagine that Cinderella somehow was able to access Walt Disney's storyboard for her life. Now, of course, you're like, that's kind of crazy. A character in a story cannot talk to the author of the story. But just for the sake of the argument, follow this. What would happen to her if she was able to read Walt Disney's storyboard for the story of Cinderella? How would that affect her? Well, we've already said she'd learn how it ends. That's really important. But beyond that now, what I'm saying is she'd also learn all the major points between. She'd see Walt Disney's entire plan for the entire story. And once she had read the storyboard, she would be able to say with utter confidence, I know, I know with absolute certainty that Walt Disney is working everything together for my good. I know it. Because he storyboarded it, he's the author, he's the one writing the story, he will bring me through to the happily ever after. Now, of course, again, this never happens in any story. But listen, what if it has? What if God, because he loves his children so much, decided to allow us to read his storyboard for his universe? Friends, that's exactly what we get in this passage For in this passage, we're going to discover in just a moment that God planned out the story of his universe before he ever created it. You could say he storyboarded it. He had a purpose. He had a plan. And now here's what's most amazing. It's not, well, it's not amazing that God would plan out his universe before he creates it. That part you can be like, okay, but here's the big point. God has allowed his children to read his storyboard. Now, why has he done this? It's not to satisfy your curiosity. That's not the reason. The reason why he has done it is to give his children a buoyancy amidst their trials. He wants all those who belong to Jesus Christ to never despair, to never feel like they have to give up. And so he's allowed us to read his storyboard, not just so that we know how it ends, but so we can see the big picture and our place within it so that we can say with Paul, I know that for those who love God, everything is working out for our good. That's why he has done it. So if you want to become unsinkable, you need to read the storyboard. Now let me show you where I'm getting all of this. I get it all from verses 28 to 30, but specifically one phrase. So let's put this back on the screen. We have not looked at this phrase yet. In the three weeks, two weeks we've looked at this, this is the third week. We've not looked at this phrase. This little phrase where he says, according to his purpose. This is actually the key to this entire section of Scripture. Track Paul's argument. Follow me closely. First of all, this moment of certainty. We know 
He's utterly certain. What do we know, Paul? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for our ultimate good. We've defined that over the weeks. For those who are called, here it is now, according to his purpose. So what Paul is saying is, your life, God's weaving it all together for your ultimate good, but even all of that, it's within a larger purpose. God has a purpose. God has a plan. We might say a story And all the events within your life that he's weaving together, it's all part of a giant, larger purpose. Now, here's the big question. What's the purpose? Well, he doesn't say it right here, does he? He just says, according to his purpose. But as I keep trying to show you in other weeks, you can go on because verses 29 to the end of verse 30 are defining what his purpose is. How do I know that? The little word for, that's the connecting word. His purpose for, and then in verse 30, and what that does is it connects this whole thing right back to this single phrase. Everything builds up to his purpose, and everything after this is an explanation of his purpose. So what we want to do right now is we want to read God's storyboard to see his giant purpose, his giant story, which he laid out in advance, which he is working out toward its end. And as we're going to look at this, I'll tell you right up front, there are five chapters in God's big story of his universe. To see them really clearly, I want to focus just on his main thoughts. Let's remove his sub-thoughts that we've looked at a couple uh, during the other weeks about the firstborn among many brothers and the image of his son. So let's re-put this verse up on the screen. Here's how we would read it if you stick just with his main thoughts. Now it becomes clear. Here's the five chapters to the big story. For those whom he foreknew, that's chapter 1, he also predestined, that's chapter 2. And those whom he predestined, he also called, that's chapter 3. And those whom he called, he also justified, 4. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, that's chapter 5. So there are five chapters that God purposed. There are five chapters within God's big story. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Those are the five chapters. And what I want to do now then is to begin to unpack those five chapters for us. But before we do that, let's just pause because I think everybody needs to take a breath. Some of you are stressing out already because he talked about predestination. He's going to talk about predestination. For some Christians, there's like a visceral response. Like, oh, it brings up all kinds of emotions. The arguments are going to begin now. Oh, we're just getting ready, okay? And the, the, the level of heat is rising. But I want us all to breathe. I want to take this way, way down. Two quick thoughts before we look at this story. First of all, Let's just come to grips with the fact that the word predestination is a biblical word. John Calvin did not invent the word predestination. If God wants that word in the Bible, it's there to help you. So ask yourself, does predestination help and comfort you, or does it just make you upset and angry? It means you haven't understood it very well if it just makes you upset and angry. But here's the second big, big thing, and I'm going to really camp out on this one. I want you to notice that when Paul brings up the word predestination, he does not immediately kind of digress into great huge debates and arguments like Christians love to do. No, what's the whole context of this? Stick to the context. Stick to the text. Is he he bringing all this up to be controversial and to have debates? 
No, he's bringing it up for your comfort, for your assurance, so that you'll be utterly convinced that God is working all things together for your good. He wants to bring it up so you can have a buoyancy. In other words, within this context, the whole idea of predestination is supposed to be one of the most comforting, assuring truths your Christian can possibly know. So ask yourself, is predestination one of the most comforting doctrines you know? If it's not, I would suggest that maybe you've not really understood it. Maybe this morning it can become that for you. All right, enough of the side comments. Here's the big picture. Remember the main context. Please remember this. I'll keep saying it. The reason why Paul is going to let us read God's storyboard is that we might say with him, I know, I'm utterly convinced that God is working all things together for my good. And how can we know that? Paul says, read the storyboard, because once you've read the storyboard, you'll be convinced. So here, I'll put it all like this. Here's my main point, of which everything else is going to be a sub-point. You can know that God is working all things out for your good. Here's the reason. Because God has always been working for your good. That's the big main point. Everything else is a subpoint now, okay? That, remember that. That's the context we're looking at. Now, all five chapters of God's storyboard are meant to just drive this truth home, to inflate your heart with air. So let's walk through these chapters and see if we can't receive this great assurance. Chapter one. Chapter one is all about this. It's about the fact that God set his love upon you before he created the world. As we start to read God's storyboard, what is so incredible is that God has not just been working for your good from before you were born. That's true. No, it's way more than that. He's been working for your good before the planets and stars were even born. I get this from verse 29. Look at verse 29 with me. He says, for those whom he foreknew, foreknew, foreknowledge, before knowledge. So what is this saying? Those whom he foreknew. Is it just saying, well, God knew that we would one day exist? No, it's saying much more than that. Of course, God knew before we ever existed. He knew everyone who was going to live. But this, this word here contains so much more than just a basic knowledge of existence. In the Bible, when it uses this term, it's always referring to a relationship of love. For instance, in Matthew 7, we read that Jesus is going to say some terrible words to some people on Judgment Day, terrifying words. The words are, I never knew you. To hear those words will be terrible. But what do those words mean? Is that to mean that Jesus is going to say, I actually never heard about you guys before. I didn't even know you existed. Sorry about that. That's, that's not what he means when he says, I never knew you. When he says, I never knew you, he means I don't have a relationship with you in that sense. I don't know who you are in a relational love sense. Perhaps one of the best examples of this comes from the Old Testament, and this is the whole Old Testament background. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, we read these words. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, what is this? This is when God introduces Eve, the bride, to Adam. So, so what, what's going on in, in this verse? Does this mean that Adam walked up to Eve, put out his hand, introduced himself? Madam, my name is Adam. What's your name? And she said, my name is Eve. And when that happened, suddenly a baby popped out and they named him Cain. Is that what that verse is saying? That once they knew about each other's existence, then suddenly a baby was formed? No. 
If there's kids watching, parents, I'll leave this one to you. But this simply means they knew each other in the most intimate possible way within a relationship of love. Clearly, that's what it means. Now, listen, bring this together. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then what this verse is saying is that you can know with absolute certainty that God is working everything together for your ultimate good. How can you know that? Because way back at the beginning of the story, we get to read his storyboard, and way back at the beginning we discover he set his love upon you before the planets and stars were even born. And if he set his love upon you then, then surely his love will continue for you all the way to the end. That's chapter one of the storyboard when you read it. He foreknew you. That brings us to chapter two of the author's storyboard. God didn't just set his love on you. In the second place, in chapter two, God determined your destination before he created the world. He determined your destination before he created the world. Look at verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also did something else for them. Same group of people, he also predestined them. Now again, don't get scared off by that word. It means to determine one's destination ahead of time. So now, here's the question. What is the destination that God, when he set his love upon this group of people, upon you, if you belong to Christ, what is the destination that he wanted to bring you to at the end? Again, stick to the text. What does the text say? He says it in the very next phrase. He foreknew, he also predestined, here's the end goal, to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, this word predestined should be one of the most comforting words in the world to you because what it says to you is that the very God who set his love upon you before the creation of the world also decided before the creation of the world that he was going to eventually take a fallen creature like you, a sinful creature like you, and he was going to save you and completely transform you to be the perfect human being exactly like his son. He's going to bring you into that happily ever after. So read God's storyboard. This is supposed to be so comforting for you. You can know with certainty that God will work all things in your life for good because he set his love upon you before the creation of the world, and he even decided your destiny, and he's going to work it all toward that end. That brings us to the third chapter of God's storyboard. To ensure that you do get to that final destination, here's what he says, or here's what we call chapter three, that God called you to himself in time, in space history. He called you to himself. Here it is now in our verse, in chapter verse 30. So every single person whom he foreknew, this group of people, he also did a second thing for them. He predestined them. And for that same group of people, he also, those whom he predestined, he also called them. He called them. This is a key phrase. Sometimes people say, well, if you believe in predestination, you can't really believe in evangelism because whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved anyways. Right now you see on this exact verse how untrue that is. For even though God is going to set his love upon a people, he is going to use means to bring them to himself. And the means that he uses is the preaching of the gospel. So God sends all of us out to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. That's what we call the general call of God. We say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That general call goes out. But this verse is not referring to that general call. It's referring to an inward, specific, individual call. 
Think of it this way. It's like when Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and gone. And then Jesus, greatly disturbed within his spirit, called for them to move the stone aside. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And when Jesus called his name, the dead man suddenly came to life. And when he came to life, he obeyed the call of his master and came out from the dead. Here's how the Bible describes all of us. We're all dead in our sins. We're laying in the tomb. The general call goes out, and we cannot respond, for we are dead. But God in his grace, by his Holy Spirit, calls us by name. He says, Barton, come out. John, come out. Michaela, come out. Lucas, come out. He names us, and he calls us out. And when he does that, the Spirit grants us new life so that we call upon Jesus Christ and are saved. This is the means by which God calls us to himself. So how do you know then if God has called your name? It's very simple. Have you responded to the call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? If you've called on Jesus to save you, it means you've heard his call. You've responded. He's given you spiritual life. If you've heard his call, you've responded and you've come out of the tomb. So you can know that God is working all things for your good because he's always been doing it. He started out by setting his love upon you. He determined your final destination. In space and time, he called you to himself. And having called you, he had to do another very important thing for you lest you never make it to that final destination. Here in chapter 4, we could simply say this, God justified you. Here it is in verse 30. Again, for those whom he foreknew, he also did something else. He predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also did another thing. He called them. And those whom he called, he also justified. That is, through Jesus Christ, he clears you of your guilt. And he gives you Jesus' perfect record so that you can stand before God the judge and be blameless and perfect in his sight. And then that brings us to the final step. The final thing on God's giant storyboard Here's the final thing we could say this. Chapter 5 is that God glorified you. Again, let's make sure we see it in the verse. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, all the people who've been along this path, on this storyboard, he also glorified. Bring this all together now. Do you see then how reading God's storyboard makes you unsinkable? When you read God's storyboard, you know his purpose. And God tells you his purpose, not to satisfy your curiosity, most certainly not to start great debates. No, he tells you, lets you read his storyboard so that you can know with certainty that he truly is working out everything in your life for good, even when you don't feel like it. You can know when you read that storyboard, you can know with absolute certainty that he's working for your good because he's always been working from your good. From before the creation of the world, he's done everything necessary along the path to get you to the happily ever after. So that you can say with Paul, not simply, I sure hope that he glorifies me. I sure hope that I'll get to that happily after. No. How does Paul begin verse 28? And we know. 
We know that's certainty, that's assurance. And when you can say that, then that is what makes you unsinkable. That's how you and I, when like Cinderella, we're in the midst of our stories, we never lose hope, we never despair. For God foreknew me, God predestined me, God called me, God justified me, and God is the one who will glorify me. Do you want to be unsinkable? Do you want this buoyancy? Then read the last page of the story. But now also we see here in the second place, read the author's storyboard. Well, as if that's not enough. I mean, that's plenty. Really, we don't even need any more. Oh, but there's one more thing. One more thing that Paul gives us, that if, it, if you're not feeling inflated yet, <laughs> that you will burst back to the surface on this final one. So in the final place, if you want to become unsinkable, then read the verb tense. Read the verb tense that the author has given us. We saw that Paul uses five verbs to describe what God does for his people. Do you remember what those five verbs are? Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now, when we read this, did any of this strike you as odd? Did any of this strike you as a little bit weird? If, if you're reading closely, something should have. What is it that really stands out to you? Which verb sounds a little bit weird? Is it not the last one? Glorified? Because did we not say that glorification is a future act that God will perform when Jesus returns and he'll give us resurrection bodies, transform us to be like Christ, bring us into his new world? It's a future thing. So if it's a future thing, get this, why is it in the past tense? It makes perfect sense that all the other ones are in the past tense. If you belong to Christ, it makes sense that he once foreknew you, he once predestined you. Yes, he called you. You might even remember the exact moment when he called you. You know that he has justified you. But how can he say that he's already glorified you and this is a future thing? Why would it be put in a past tense? If you can answer this question, this will fill you with so much air that you will never sink again. Here's really what's going on. Paul is not messing up his verb tense. Paul is doing this on purpose. Here's what Paul is trying to say to you. That when God makes a plan, it is as good as done before it even starts. When God makes a plan, it's as good as done before it even starts. In other words, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've called upon him to save you, then reading God's storyboard will teach you this very important point, that if you belong to Christ, your future glorification is so guaranteed, it's like it already happened. Oh, just, just breathe this in. Let this just fill your soul with air. How can you know that God is truly working all things for your ultimate good, especially when your circumstances feel like it sure isn't happening? You can know with absolute certainty because God's purpose was to set his love upon you, to determine your final destination, to call you to himself, to justify you through Jesus Christ, and to bring you through to the happily ever after. That's his storyboard. That's his purpose. That's his plan. Now, everything in this sermon comes to this single point for you, and answer me this question clearly. Will the almighty God fail to accomplish what he planned? Will the sovereign creator of the universe fail to accomplish what he decided he would do? 
Listen, will he who has been working for your good and says that he will do this, and he's done it from the very beginning of the creation, will he who's always been working for your good fail to bring you to the final step of this giant story? Oh, no. To use another verse from Paul, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know that kind of certainty? Do you you know that kind of assurance? Paul's larger point is to show you the large purpose of God. And he's shown you all of this so that you can be utterly convinced that he's working everything for your good, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. See, you and I are just like Cinderella. We're in the middle of our stories. We got all kinds of bad things happening to us. All kinds of pain may be going on, all kinds of suffering, but God loves his children and he wants you to never despair and to never lose hope. How can you never despair and never lose hope? You gotta read the last page. He said, I'm gonna tell you how it all ends so that you'll never ever lose hope. Not only that, I'm gonna let you read my storyboard so that you can see the whole entire overarching narrative of my giant story. I'm gonna let you read that verb tense which is gonna show you that what I start, I always complete, so that you can come back around again to this main point to say with Paul, we know that for those who love God, everything works together for good. This is what made Paul unsinkable. This is what will make you unsinkable. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a little-known book, the one that never gets quoted. It's called The Horse and His Boy. The boy is named Shasta, and Shasta is raised by the Kalorman people who have rejected Aslan, who is the creator of the entire world of Narnia, and rather the Kalorman people worship a god named Tash. And Shasta's life is difficult from beginning all the way through. For instance, he is found lying half dead as a baby in a boat by a fisherman who can't sleep one night, and he, he finds the baby laying in the bottom of the boat, and so he raises him as his own. But he's got a difficult life under this fisherman. One time he gets chased by a lion. He's forced to swim for his entire life. Another time he has to hide in a graveyard as jackals are coming in and trying to kill him. On yet another occasion, he journeys across a desert, and a lion attacks and injures his horse, and he's trying to get to this king named King loon and he has to cross his whole desert and he's trying to uh, fight off this lion and run away from this lion to get to the king on time. In other words, it seems like everything in his life has gone wrong and there's a point in the story where he loses hope and he falls into utter despair. He's riding his horse one night and it's pitch black. Suddenly, he senses a presence beside him. He can't see anything, but a voice begins to speak to him. After he gets over his initial fears, Shasta begins to talk to this voice, and eventually he tells him kind of his life story and all these terrible things that have happened to him, and he begins at the end to reflect on how unfortunate he has been. But then we read these words, I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? Quote, there was only one lion. I was the lion, said the voice. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erevis, who is his girl traveler and eventually becomes his wife. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. 
I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Shasta turns to see that the voice is actually a lion. And the lion, of course, is Aslam himself, the great creator of the entire world of Narnia. And Shasta falls at his feet in total worship and devotion, for he suddenly realizes that the creator of all Narnia has been working all things together for his good. And that continues for Shasta is there at the end of the series when Aslan recreates the world of Narnia and he brings Shasta into the everlasting peace of the new world of Narnia. If you do not belong to Jesus Christ today, this is the kind of God who rules the universe, a God who seeks the good of his people. So here's the question, are you one of his people? How do you become one of his people? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Call upon Jesus, say, forgive me of my sins, and make me one of your people. If you are one of his people, then receive the comfort, oh, the great comfort of this passage. Let it breathe new air into your deflated soul. You can be certain that God is working everything in your life for your good. You can be utterly certain of that, even when it seems like it's not the case. For he has been working for your good from before the creation of the world. And friends, one day, the voice behind these words will reveal himself to you, and you will see him face to face. On that day, perhaps, he will explain to you like he did to Shasta, why all these things happened, how they all work together, and you will marvel and you will stand in awe at the great power of a God who is able to work every single event together to reach the happily ever after, to bring all the pieces of the story toward your ultimate good. Rest in Him. Relax in Him. Find comfort and assurance in Him. For to those who love God, God is working all things for their ultimate good. Let's pray. Father, these are big truths we are looking at today. And I pray that they would land on our hearts in the right way. I pray that they would do what it seems like why Paul wrote this for us, why the Spirit inspired Paul to write these, that it would do for us what what the Spirit intends, which is to convince us, to give us that certainty, that deep inner peace that we can trust you in all of our trials, for you will bring us through to that great happily ever after. Encourage each one who's watching this today. Draw each one to yourself, I pray and minister comfort to them. Thank you for this rock that is under our feet. Thank you for this great hope that we have. Oh, Father, how incredible that you would let us read the last page of the story. How incredible that you would allow us to see your storyboard. Enable us to follow you in all faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.